0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. This year, Washington became the second state to place a price on carbon across most of its economy. Governor Jay Inslee says there's no time to waste.
1: We gotta wake up every morning figuring out how can I disrupt the status quo? Because the status quo is deadly, it's fatal. It will destroy our economies and the
0: biology that we exist on. The cap and invest bill made it through the legislature with surprise
2: support from oil company BP. If we do the same thing today, 40 years from now just make oil and natural gas products and ship them around the world, our company is not going to be successful in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. So how do we balance protecting
0: the economy and the environment as climate disruption continues?
3: Clean water is good for the economy, too. Healthy orcas and healthy salmon and robust tribal fisheries, you know, helps everybody out. Has Washington state set a
0: new bar for robust and just climate policy? Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Washington has set in motion a price on carbon pollution across a huge swath of its economy, but it didn't get there easily. In 2016, shortly after the Paris Climate Agreement was ratified, the state voted down a measure that would have imposed a carbon tax and reduced the state's sales tax. In 2018, BP and other oil companies spent a reported $30 million against a similar measure, which also failed.
4: Disappointment for climate activists as Initiative 1631 is trailing this morning by about 13. But
0: this year, BP and other former opponents of climate policy came on board, along with environmentalists and tribes. I asked Governor Jay Inslee why this coalition of previous foes came together to support Washington's cap and invest bill. Well, the
1: world is changing. And thank goodness, it's not changing. In one sense, it's changing too fast, which is the biological collapse of the systems we depend on as humans. So it's going way too fast that way. But it is also changing on the momentum we have to attack the first problem. And that is changing, like, weekly in the United States, and it's a good thing. Now, unfortunately, it has taken massive forest fires Uh, billions of, of clams and mussels being cooked in their shells, ocean acidification, sea level rise, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods in Germany and China to bring the increased public consciousness. So the public's consciousness is changing on this dramatically in the last several years. And organs of government and business are responding to that, including BP to some degree. So the the most fundamental change that has occurred is that people are, are now realizing the threat to their personal hopes and dreams. That's the fundamental change, and the reason they are realizing that it is no longer an abstraction. You know, in, in in 1998 or 1999, when I invited Al Gore to come give his presentation to my colleagues, it was a graph. Right, we had a graph in 2006 when I when I brought. Uh, you know, an oceanographer from Stanford to show ocean acidification. It was a graph. Now it's a picture of dead coral all around the world from warming and acidification. And, and so people are experiencing this visually and in their own lives. And that is fundamentally changing this. And that's why we have to be aggressive, assertive, uh, take no prisoners and perseverant. And that's what we have brought to the table as well. Now, we were able to craft through Herculean effort Uh, support for this cap and invest bill. And that took a lot of shoe leather, a lot of listening, a lot of consensus building to build something that is workable and tangible and answers the needs of so many different corners of society. One benefit we had is we learned from the California experience, right? So we saw some of the imperfections of their first draft, if you will, and we've learned from that to make sure that we have a cap that does create a a meaningful price signal and the the floor just didn't drop out. We've crafted our environmental justice ways to make sure that minority and communities of of poverty that are the first and the worst hit by climate change are benefited adequately uh, uh, by the dollars that are invested. Now, this also, I, I should note, this is not our first success, right? So the previous legislative session... We created the most ambitious and best clean electrical grid requirement for totally clean electricity. So this wasn't our first
0: rodeo. It's our our most recent. With more rodeos to come, we're still not done yet. And you vetoed sections of the cap and invest in low carbon fuel standards part of this package, sparking rebukes from two fellow Democrats, Assembly Speaker Laurie Jenkins and Senate Majority Leader Andy Billig. Both said your veto was overreach of executive powers that allow Washington governor to veto a full section of a bill, not a subsection. So what do you say to those who said you exceeded your authority in pursuing this big climate win?
1: Well, I am a committed Democrat, and I love those two leaders, but they are human and can make mistakes on occasion and and will be forgiven in the fullness of time. Uh, Listen, uh, we have to get these climate bills uh, in place. Uh, This is a convoluted story. I don't know if your listeners want to hear it, but basically the problem was is that because of a couple of recalcitrant Democrats who are not those two leaders, those two leaders have been good leaders to try to advance climate change legislation. But in order to get this passed, uh, they had to put a poison pill in both, in both of our climate bills that essentially kneecapped the bill. They basically said the bills were not going to affect until these other legislators got what they want, which is a 5 cent gas tax. Well, that's crazy. What is a gas tax? Why should a, gas, a looming gas tax got to do with stopping climate change legislation? So I rightfully, within my constitutional prerogative and my moral obligation, vetoed this with a total sense of confidence that it is in our constitutional power, because it was a section veto, because that section was unique. Now, I won't bother you with the arcane legalese of that, but I am very firm ground that this, this veto was legally appropriate and absolutely necessary. We could not sit around while legislators twiddled their thumbs worrying about a five-cent gas tax. That's nuts. Shellfish were dying and getting boiled Uh, on our beaches. The fires are consuming north-central Washington. I can't tell the folks in Nespulim, Washington, well, sorry, we got to wait for a five-cent gas tax." Uh, That's not the washing away.
0: Yeah, that's actually, you know, there's many people, the climate situation is so urgent that it requires bending rules, breaking norms, shaking up the status quo that rests on fossil fuel capitalism. Democracy is slow by design. And there's a group of growing group of people who think incremental change within the existing establishment is not going to get the job done.
1: Listen, an attitude of disrupting the status quo is a necessary survival mechanism for the human species right now. We got to wake up every morning figuring out, how can I disrupt the status quo? Because the status quo is deadly. It's fatal. It will destroy our economies and the biology that we exist on. So that attitude is an appropriate one. But we can get this done while still maintaining our democratic traditions.
0: And you said earlier that BP has changed a little bit. I talk later in this episode with BP executive Tom Wolf. Uh, do you welcome having oil companies, you know, on your side uh, now in this climate bill? It quite strikes me as odd that you know oil is on board and Republicans aren't. That's a interesting picture. Uh, as Lincoln said, "As our case is new, we
1: must think anew." And yes, we should welcome people who agree with with particular. Uh, strategies going forward, and BP may disagree with other ones. That should not stop us from working to pass good policies uh, in my book. It, the, the, the situation is too dire not to not to welcome any effort to try to pass good climate legislation. We don't have the luxury of sort of disvi- dividing the world
0: into two camps here. Right. Uh, it's the way things used to do is cut deals with people you don't agree with uh, people. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> right. That's, right? that's yeah. called democracy. Uh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, yeah. um, You also vetoed language in the bill dealing with tribal consultation and consent. Some tribal leaders have called this, quote, betrayal of tribal interests. In this episode, we're also talking with Leonard Forceman, chairman of the Suquamish tribe, who says his people are frustrated with your veto, but looking forward to working with you on new consultation language. How do you respond to the range of reactions from indigenous leaders about this big climate bill in Washington state?
1: Well, I was just in the on the coal Reservation, and people welcomed the climate work we were doing with, with a lot of uh, attaboys yesterday. They understand that we're doing great climate work in Washington, and I certainly didn't hear those frustrations yesterday. But they do exist because there was a necessary veto because of the way this was drafted. And many of the tribes I've spoken to actually uh, to understand the reason for the veto, which is it would have given absolute authority Under virtually any circumstance for any tribe to veto any project, any clean energy project, anywhere in the state of Washington, for essentially any reason without any uh, justification, including, and here's why uh, quite a number of the tribes agree with the veto, not all of them, not all of them, but many of them, is it would have allowed one tribe to veto a clean energy project on another tribe's property and the tribes are not hap- <laughs> you know the tribes are pretty proud of their sovereignty they don't want anyone violating their sovereignty the way this unfortunately was drafted would allow one tribe to invade the sovereignty of another and stop their clean energy project well we want tribes to be able to advance their own visions of clean energy and not to be intruded upon on their territory by another tribe so it had it had an imperfection But the fundamental thing that I'm sure Leonard will talk to you about, who I am a super admirer of Chairman Forsman, is that we have to have as good a consultation process as possible. So when we develop these clean energy projects, we have to have close, persistent, and effective consultation for tribes if it's on land that they consider sacred or have a particular interest in, and to have a process where on a sovereign-to-sovereign basis there's consultation about that, particularly early in the projects. Not just in the last day of the project, so that we can, if there are ways to cite things in a way to achieve the goal of the clean energy project, but and avoid, you know, disturbing some ground called sacred. We ought to totally investigate those things. We ought to have robust conversations. So next month, or in September, we're going to have a a, a summit, if you will, with tribal leaders to work out that consultation language. I'm confident
0: we will get there, and people will feel good about this ongoing relationship. Over this last year of a um, racial reckoning in our country, I've learned a lot about um, talk to indigenous leaders and been addressed my shameful ignorance, frankly, of the education I had and you know, about indigenous people in this country that have been kind of erased. And there's a growing realization in some climate circles that indigenous people have knowledge and practices that can help address the broader climate emergency. Prescribed burns of forest, for example, could head off the megafires ravaging the American West. What have you learned in your trips to these tribes from indigenous people that has personally resonated with you and shaped your thinking and behavior?
1: Well, I am very, we're very blessed having these tribes in our state because they have a long view of history and the future, number one. And the, the first thing that I think is such a virtue in my state is we have tribes that, when they think of these things, think of the seventh generation when, when they make decisions, almost in every decision they make. That is a huge virtue. It is a important survival tactic and it helps lead our state to make good environmental decisions so that's number 1 to start every discussion thinking about it in those long term views of what it does to our ecosystem uh, but the second on a more you know tactical way you mentioned the burns so yesterday i was in the speelum and we were talking with the fire suppression crews there about how we do need to do some uh, more prescribed burns to remove the the the, the dense fuel load on the forest floor, which is now so dry, which is going back to exactly what the tribes did here on the Nisqually Prairie, five miles from where I'm sitting right now. They historically did burns that keep that, kept that in a system that was healthy for nutrition, berries, game, whatever they they had. And they managed the forest. And we're going gonna to have to go back to some of that management style, if you will. And fortunately we have Reached a good consensus in our state about how to do that, how to do that in a way that doesn't, you know, uh, endanger more endangered species, that does not cause undue air pollution. We're in a good place about how to do that work, but we have to finance it. it. Costs money to do this work, right? It's not self-supportive yet. We have increased our state commitment by millions of dollars to this work, but you can imagine how many hundred thousands of acres that need this treatment over time. It's enormous. And the scale of the fire danger is beyond imagination. We talked to these firefighters. They said, look, I've been doing this for 30 years, but I have never seen anything like this. These dry conditions are, you know, one ember is
0: is a catastrophic fire now. Right. It's, it's astonishing. As a candidate for president in 2020, you shaped the platforms of other Democratic candidates. You were the climate candidate and shaped the platform of Joe Biden and others. Progressives and climate hawks were disappointed when the recent bipartisan infrastructure deal uh, did not include many of his plans for decarbonizing the U.S. economy. Is President Biden being ambitious enough on climate?
1: Well, I I will tell you, uh, I believe President Biden is doing a super job for us in in this realm. And I'm a guy who debated him on climate. And I think he has shown an enormous commitment to this issue. I think he gets it deeply. I think he has proposed, you know, 90% of the agenda that we need. I think he's going to be as tactical as possible to get as much of it as possible. So I am not disappointed in his leadership on climate in this regard. But he has run into some legislative realities, one being the filibuster and two being a senator or two in the Democratic caucus, who are not yet totally expressing total commitment to these things. So, yes, all of us could be disappointed that this was not in the bipartisan infrastructure, which is woefully short. Let me report this. The bipartisan thing is woefully short for what we got to get done. But the president recognizes that, and that's why he is supportive of the reconciliation bill with billions of dollars appropriately invested in a in a slug of A through Z of clean energy strategies. And I think it's a very, very robust proposal on the reconciliation. Now, he's got Nancy Pelosi in there, who's one of the super uh, leaders on climate, and, and Schumer will, will help out, too. I'm a House member, so I always start with the House and Nancy. Uh, so we have a lot of promise right now, but we need to get the reconciliation bill, obviously, uh, uh, to, to have what what we need. And I'm hopeful that we can achieve that. Now, you know, I kind of disagree with the president on the filibuster on this, though. I I was the first candidate to say that when I was running, and I'm still the firmest. It is such an impediment to survival of humans. The filibuster right now is one of the most dangerous things on the planet, because it enables the fossil fuel industry to block progress of the things we have to do. So I'm hopeful that over time, uh, everybody, uh, at least those who want to save the planet, come to realize that and say that that's just an artifact of a bygone uh, era. I'm also hope that at the end of the day, a couple of our Democratic senators feel that they've run their string out far enough. Now it's time to get on the on the bus, get on the electric bus. The sooner uh, the better. It has to. This
0: is our last chance, and uh, we have to get this done. If oil got on board with carbon pricing in Washington state, is there any reason to believe they would get on board with national pricing, that that Washington is a sense, you know, a model for, for the country? That sounds, um, you are know, very uncomfortable saying that because of history, but is that kind of, you know, too rosy to think that might actually come about?
1: It's not too rosy at some point. It doesn't exist today. Again, this was not monolithic. We had one company, you know, BP, that helped on this, but- Certainly the majority of the industry did not. So, you know, I think the president has concluded he doesn't have the political, uh, you know, momentum to pass a a universal cap right now. That's the thing that we have done that I hope will lead the nation that will ultimately be a national proposal. But it'll help if a state goes forward like Washington to show the way, to show we'll continue to grow our economy, to continue to show we're protecting our energy-intensive industries because we do embrace some pricing system to build in a, you know, a, a fee, if you will, of imports that we would have to compete with to show that this is doable. So th- I think Washington's going to help. I think eventually we can get there nationally. Maybe it's not today, but it's important that our state's moving ahead uh, to do that. But we need much more than a cap system. We need direct investment, too. We need direct capital investment by the national government In a whole slug of things. Let me just mention infrastructure, electrical charging infrastructure. We have some really great plans to move to electrical vehicles. And I'm looking forward to the administration allowing the California uh, zero emissions vehicle standard to go in place. The moment that happens, my, my ZEV standard goes into place as well. So that's going to be really exciting. But we have to build the electrical charging infrastructure as well. And that it's very helpful to have direct federal investment in that. That's why the reconciliation package is so important. There is a portion of that in the infrastructure bill, but it's not enough because 40, 45 percent of our people don't, you know, they live in apartments. They don't have a place to, to charge their, their car. So this requires uh, investment, not just a, a
0: cap bill, if you will. We'll continue my conversation with Governor Inslee later in the show. Coming up, a BP executive explains his company's pivot to a new energy future.
2: The market's changing, and if, if you're not adapting to the new market, the low-carbon market that the Paris Accords are working toward, that everyone's working toward, your business is not going to be successful. That's up next when Climate One continues.
3: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the
2: problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this.
0: In 2018, Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg helped raise a reported $15 million in support of a ballot initiative in Washington state that would have put a price on carbon pollution. BP alone spent a reported $13 million to defeat the measure. Tom Wolfe is senior manager of government affairs for the U.S. West Coast for BP America. I asked him why BP and other oil companies worked so hard to defeat that ballot
2: initiative three years ago and why BP changed course to back the carbon price measure that passed earlier this year. So in 2016, there was an initiative on the ballot that was an economy-wide price on carbon that uh, we were neutral on, because it was economy-wide and affected everybody equally. In 2018, as you mentioned, there was an, another initiative that really was just about us. And it was just pointing at, not us as a company, us as an industry and our customers. Um, and we, it wasn't an economy-wide, and it. It let off the hook some other companies who have carbon uh, uh, emissions in the state of Washington, and we didn't think that was a fair approach. Um, so we did fight that measure. Uh, we, when we talked, when, when we made that decision in 2018, we told the governor, we told all the legislators um, that we would be in after this, if the voters voted this down, to try to find that sweet spot, to try to find that price on carbon. And in early 2019, we did just that, working with legislative leaders and the governor's office to say, how can we find that price on carbon that can pass? And I'm happy to tell you that we found that. We were helpful in that, uh, finding that uh, price on carbon and that uh, solution in the 2021 legislative session. And we're pumped about it.
0: So that was quite a switch. You know, there were a lot of people opposed to previous uh, efforts. You know, environmentalists were opposed, indigenous groups, environmental justice advocates. And this one uh, seems to have brought along some surprising bedfellows, some surprising supporters, some interesting switches. So what, you know, you mentioned there that this, because this was economy-wide, affects everybody equally, doesn't isolate one industry. What else was crucial to getting that coalition the third time, or perhaps more, to get this through in Washington?
2: For one thing, the environment changed a bit for everybody. For us in 2020, we announced our aims and ambitions about being a net zero company by 2050 or sooner. And later on in the years, we had specific benchmarks by 2030. So what what we were a company that was talking about a lower carbon environment, talking about carbon pricing being important. And then in 2020, we became a company that every decision we make is through that lens. And that was a change. Other companies started making their net zero goals public and how they were going to reach that goal. Environmental groups and injustice, uh, environmental justice groups and equity groups learned things from previous wins and losses. And we came together seeing what can we be for? What can we work together on? And the last piece of it is legislative and executive branch leadership. The governor's office, Governor Inslee's office, and the legislative leaders on the environment committees in the House and Senate, they had... A decade of experience on this and a decade of losing on this, but they, they learned from all those. So when the end game happens at the end of session, when this bill was going through that last piece, they knew the bill. They knew the push points and they knew what they needed to get to through the coalition support to get to the votes they needed to get the yes, and they pulled it off.
0: How important was just the rising, uh, you know, evidence and experience of climate events, hot weather, melting snow, uh, disruption, as well as pressure from youth? How much did, did that change put pressure on all these groups to kind of get a deal this time?
2: I think that's the biggest change. I think ultimately, if you look back to when Governor Gregoire first talked about climate, climate pricing or carbon pricing, you know, imagine that. 10 years ago, and imagine how everything's changed in the past 10 years, both in business, both in education, both in just common discussion about this issue. Um, it's been a sea change in 10 years. It might not be fast enough for some people, and I appreciate that, but that whole political environment has shifted. It still has more shifting to do. There's more room to do it, but enough of that change where you know people's experiences, their conversations with their neighbors and their friends, what they see in the news, all of that matters, and all of that has changed, especially over the last three years. So you're BP Senior Manager for Government Affairs on the West Coast of the U.S.
0: How is BP's experience and the shift you're describing in Washington state? Does Will that ripple elsewhere across the country?
2: I hope it has a r- ripple effect. That's the whole point. The whole point is to get to a national price on carbon. There's no surprise that on the federal side, there's not a lot of activity, there's some discussion about it, but not a lot of activity on real solutions on this yet, um, on a price on carbon. And if we had to push it from the regional level to get the national attention and showcase what works, then let's do it that way. Uh, This this isn't a victory by itself, this is a stepping stone. And explain why BP wants a price on carbon. We like a price on carbon because it drives innovation it drives change for everybody, the individual and the company. And for us, as we look at, let's say the largest refinery in Washington state, we have 2.1 million metric tons of stationary source carbon emissions from our refinery. Um, this is the largest single source emissions in the state after the coal plants in Washington state close mid, mid this decade, we have a challenge ahead of us. How do we get to net zero by 2050 or sooner? And we do that probably by making less, making it more efficiently, sequestering the carbon, or offsetting the carbon. How do you get there? Well, you have innovation come in from inside the company and outside, and you're rewarded for that innovation. Under our Cap and Invest program now, if we lower our carbon emissions quickly or more quickly, we get benefit from that. So it's not just a a stick, there are carrots involved. And then you put that economy wide. You think of people in garages and startups in boardrooms. What do I do? How do I get this new technology out? And that price on carbon drives that innovation and makes it more palatable in the market. I'm excited and really bullish on our ability to be innovative in this space and find those solutions.
0: But for... More than a decade, oil companies have been saying, we want a price on carbon. And there's been sort of, frankly, there's been a double game. There's been, you know, public talking points, and then there's what happens in the halls of power through the American Petroleum Institute, privately, where everything is done as possible to slow it down. So why should we believe you now? Because there's been a lot of talk and greenwashing, et cetera. And I know some of this is other companies, Exxon in particular, um, you know, but this carbon, we're all for a carbon price, and then things are done privately to, to slow that down why should we believe it now
2: well ultimately uh, i think the cynicism is uh, expected i think the cynicism is uh, necessary i think we have to be our feet have to be held to the fire talk is cheap and i think the biggest proof point is it's all it's about the environment but it's also about the economic environment and where it's going and what we need to be a successful company in if we're the if we do the same thing today 40 years from now, just make oil and natural gas products and ship them around the world. Our company is not going to be successful in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, the market's changing. And if, if you're not adapting to the new market, the low carbon market that the Paris Accords are working toward, that everyone's working toward, your business is not going to be successful. So if you don't believe us and that we think we care about the environment, and I understand that, believe us that we want to be a successful business. We are transforming from an international oil and gas company to an integrated energy company. We're doing that because it's good for business. It's good for our investors. It's good for our board. It's good for our employees. It's also good for the environment, but if we don't do it, if we don't make it, then we're, our business won't be successful. One way that the business is changing is global automakers
0: are moving away from gasoline and investing billions of dollars and retooling their factories to make electric cars. And there, there's this kind of competition among countries and companies right now to say, who's going to get off gas the fastest? So where does that end of gasoline
2: cars mean for an oil company like BP? So if this was BP in 1970, we'd be like, this would be a huge issue but we're adapting to the new marketplace. We're the number one EV charging company in Great Britain right now. Pulse is the brand. Um, and we're looking at coming to the US. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how and when. And we're trying to figure out that market and where we get engaged. And a lot of other companies are as well. It'll be a very vibrant market. Um, we're gonna have to meet that challenge because those uh, Toyotas and Hondas and Fords and GMs, they're all gonna be making electric cars and consumers are gonna want them. I drive a Honda Clarity, a plug-in hybrid, and I'm learning how I use that car, you know, plug in at home, plug in other places. And the the, the uh, industry will have to figure that out. The market will figure that out. That is going to be a sea change, much like probably how we went from horses to cars, right? And that sea change. Um, but we're going to be part of that solution. So we might make less gasoline. That doesn't mean necessarily we're going to be, you know, out of the game in terms of energizing mobility.
0: So I asked the same question of auto a company a representative recently the uh, auto alliance the big automakers in the country and I said why should we believe you now because uh, they were the, uh, in 2016 they were the first out after the election saying hey let's ease off on these uh regulations and for uh, pollution standards and he said basically follow the money you know we can words are easy but they're investing billions of dollars into these new um electric cars, it would be difficult to change if, say, a Republican president comes in in 24. I'd like to ask the same of you. Follow the money, you know, CapEx, capital expenditures. What percentage of BP's capital expenditures today are going to clean versus brown? Because ultimately, you know, words can ha- are one thing, but, you know, big billions of dollars in capital investment, that shows a company's commitment
2: absolutely so um before the 2020 announcement that we were going to net zero by 2050 or sooner um, it was 500 million dollars a year that's 500 million with an m um a large amount of money um but uh i, I don't know what our capex but it wasn't a large part of our cap.
0: yeah it's like co- pocket coins on the couch for for, for you know well, more than that <laughs> uh, again
2: it's still a lot of money i mean <laughs> to be clear um but um since we did announce uh, our new uh aims and ambitions. Um, We have some specific benchmarks that we put out there. So by 2030, that number will grow tenfold to $5 billion a year, which is a 33% of our CapEx. So to be clear to your listeners, we're still going to be doing hydrocarbons. We still believe we're going to be doing hydrocarbons in 2030, some of them, and that we'll need some capital expenditure to keep that moving and meet the market needs that the market we're still going to have for some of those hydrocarbons. But a third of our investment's gonna be in low carbon initiatives. And for a company like us, that is a huge sea change. And I think the number by 2025 is $3 billion a year, a year, and that's a floor, not a ceiling. And as I like to think that as the market changes and changes rapidly, that is a floor that we'll be doing more as the more, uh, more opportunities come up.
0: Tom Wolf is Senior Manager of Government Affairs for the U.S. West Coast for BP America. Tom, since Pope Francis came to the United States in 2015, there's been rumblings about Republicans pivoting on climate. Uh, that has failed to materialize in a meaningful way, aside from one energy innovation law championed by Lisa Murkowski, and that was a significant piece of legislation. Last month, dozens of conservative legislators formed the new Conservative Climate Caucus, including Representative Cliff Benz of Oregon and Dan Newhouse and Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State, where you are. Politico reported recently that they then went silent as a devastating heat wave hit the Pacific Northwest. So there's a new climate caucus, and then it goes dark when there's a big climate event. You talk with Republicans privately. How do you see their public and private positions on energy and climate? And is you know, this long rumored coming out ever going to happen?
2: I do talk to Republicans a lot. It is a, it is not a difficult conversation. It is a very it's a very conversation, and I actually have that kinds of conversations with people uh, of all political spectrums. You know, there are people on the far left who think that oil, oil refineries should should shut down tomorrow, and I'm like, well, you use our products every day. And I've talked to some people on the right who are like, you guys should be doing what you do now. You shouldn't change anything, and that's not right either. But there is a growing group in the middle that is understanding, and the middle right included, that is understanding where things are going. But I would argue to your listeners, it's you get the government that we deserve. It's the people who move politicians. I think the the Republicans are talking more about climate change because their constituents are talking more about climate change. The constituents are going to give the Republicans an opportunity to get in this game and get it it in a way they haven't been before. That's how it happens. And on the left side, if I may say, it can't be just pressures from people saying, just shut down the fossil fuel industry or screw BP every chance you get. It's got to be, how do we have these companies get greener, get be part of the solution?
0: Right, but there's also an imbalance. I mean, there's a lot of funding for from fossil fuel funding that goes into Congress, and there's a few issues where, you know, frankly, the votes are out of sync with uh, with public sentiment. On um, you know, the public wants uh, background checks on guns, that doesn't happen, right? So there are places where politicians don't reflect public uh, opinion um, you know in in Washington state Republican state legislators opposed Washington's cap and trade bill that BP supported you know are there long-held political alliances that are shifting here?
2: I think and and the state there are I think federally if I could solve the federal issue in Congress, I'd be in a different podcast. Greg but um, locally I I just see those conversations changing I do see the conversations with Republicans they did not support the cap and invest program nor the low carbon fuel standard that does not mean they don't see the problem They're not sure of this solution. And I think over time— But what's what's
0: the opposition to the solution if an oil company is saying, hey, (laughs) this affects us, we're for it. When industry supports it, environmentalists support it, indigenous people, uh, icons of, of the Seattle, Washington economy, Amazon and Microsoft support it, and Republicans oppose it.
2: I don't get it. So, uh, if I can channel them a little bit, you know, agri- the world of agriculture very iffy on this, you know, because they're they they see pricing of fuel that they use all the time, um, and they're 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 concerned about this. The constituents um, in the eastern part of Washington, which is much more conservative, mm-hmm. you know, they see those gas prices and they're kind of focused on that. I just think over time, and again, I'm I'm bullish. I'm I'm a glasses half full kind of guy is that people will see this in a different light in the in the years ahead and will bring more republican voices into this but it's i'm not sure who's going to lead whom will it be the people that says oh my god cut the crap we have to get this accomplished or will be leaders telling their constituents we have to get past this we have to go through this transition but any time in our country transition's always been hard it always it's it's been a leap to get to where we have to get to but the people can get there. I think one of the reasons we got there as a company is because our employees and our investors and our market is telling us you got to change. And that isn't any different for politicians.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting place where we are where the global automakers and oil companies are out for- front moving more than the Republican Party because of investor and customer pressure. If Republicans don't come out and support the bills that BP wants them to support for something as important as climate change, does that mean you change your political giving?
2: The short answer is yes. Yes. I'll be looking at that and I'll be making changes based on that.
0: What do you think of President Biden's jobs and infrastructure plans and his BP supporting uh, pushing that forward?
2: Uh, and we are. I mean, you know, the uh we're we've been supportive of the paris accord obviously we're uh, president biden put us back in the paris accord president biden's talking about net zero by mid-century we're talking about that um you know we're talking he's talking about methane uh, regulations we're talking about methane regulations there's a lot of synergies there um, and we're, again we're not just focused on this in the u.s but globally working with governments to find that price on carbon or other regulations you know, incentivize the action toward a lower carbon society. incentivize those actions to get to the Paris accord uh, goals. Um, And for the infrastructure piece, you know, whether it's mass transit or other pieces of it, anything that helps lower that carbon footprint, that makes total sense to us. Um, They're looking at EV charging station incentives. Again, we're going to be in the EV charging world. We may or may not be successful in that world. BP, of course,
0: has been down this road before when it was shifted from British petroleum to beyond petroleum and about 15 years or so ago under under 20 20 years ago under John Brown. uh, During that time, BP helped popularize the personal carbon footprint. You know, it had a calculator on its website, and that makes some people think that, like, hmm, are the oil companies trying to put the burden back on individuals? So how do you think about the individual responsibility uh, versus kind of the systemic and, and industry
2: responsibility for carbon footprints? This is why I like the price on carbon so much. It puts the responsibility on everybody. And I'm hoping that through innovation, the consumer has a smooth transition. The consumer goes from the flip phone to the smartphone and doesn't even realize that switch lowers carbon. But ultimately, we're all responsible. We all have a, a, a place to do in this. I'm, as a company, we're an international oil and gas company switching to an integrated energy company. We have a huge footprint, and it's our responsibility to find a way to get the net zero and lower by 2050 or, by 2050 or sooner. But the consumer has to be looking for products and rewarding the, the manufacturers of those products that also have a lower carbon footprint. So I'm not sure if it's equal or, or greater or less than. But we all have to be, have skin in this game, and I think through innovation, we're going to find ways whether it's you know uh, in our homes with electricity use, find more efficient uh, appliances, whatever that is. I think it'll be easier for consumers because the innovation will push it that way. Consumers will buy good products that have a better carbon footprint. I think EVs are a perfect example, Greg. But ultimately, um, I look at the issues we have both locally in Washington State and on the West Coast and nationally in our company and globally and saying, how do we, how do we make sure we have a quality of life uh, economic environment with a much lower carbon footprint? And it ain't going to be easy. If it was easy, we'd be doing it already, we as a society. And, a co- and I would argue that It can't be just individual companies and a couple of consumers saying, we'll go to net zero by 2050. We need governments, national governments setting that price and setting those expectations, putting the carrots and sticks out. So we all have that equal innovation to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner. It's got to be a public private work, but without the public work, it ain't going to happen. We're not going to reach the Paris goals. That's why BP is advocating globally for a price on carbon Tom Wolfe, Senior Manager of Government Affairs for the West Coast
0: of America, for BP America. Thanks for coming on Climate One.
2: It was my pleasure to be here. It's a great podcast, and thanks for having this conversation. The success of Washington State's new cap and invest
0: bill also depended on support from tribes. Leonard Forsman is chairman of the Suquamish Tribe in Washington and also serves as president of the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians. He spoke with Climate One's Ariana Brocious about his view on the legislation that finally passed.
3: Well, I think it's a good first step um, towards um, addressing, you know, the impacts of climate change and carbon um, footprint management, I guess you'd call it, (laughs) reducing carbon footprint. So there was that. And I think there's a lot of um, recognition of the tribal needs uh, fiscally um, in there in the set aside um, for tribal projects. And then, of course, there's concerns about the um, consultation issues and um, the fact that part of that was vetoed. And uh, of course, there are concerns about that, but uh, we're trying to work through those best we can at this point in time.
5: Am I right in thinking that you and some other tribes opposed previous versions of this kind of a bill in past
3: years? Uh, Some tribes have had concerns about um, the aggressiveness of uh, the bills regarding addressing the number of uh, challenges in Indian country, for one, and then also in um, other um, communities of you know lower economic status or um, minority status, trying to get those um, those issues redressed uh, through a more what they may call a more progressive uh, approach. So there was a you know a lot of discussion about the fee or tax on emitters and then also the cap-and-trade. And there's also the concern that's brought up is that we need to do something to reduce carbon emissions. There has to be a reduction. And that sometimes is a criticism of just taxing and creating revenue by taxing or putting fees on the um, emitters, uh, on the polluters, and then creating money that pays for resilience. And that's one of the reasons I supported like the initiative process was that we have a long list of projects that can help um, improve habitat that's been damaged here and uh, so that helps us in resilience and clean make cleaner water less toxics improving habitat functions that support salmon clams other wildlife Um, so you know kind of weighing those against each other has always been a, a challenge for me as a tribal leader
4: Yeah.
5: So just to make sure I capture what you're saying or understand, so past efforts in the views of some tribes weren't aggressive enough in actually addressing the root causes, basically limiting carbon emissions, and didn't do a good enough job addressing concerns of tribes in terms of restoration or these other projects that need funding and help?
3: Right. There's a number of, you know, there's relocation is one uh, cost for some of the tribes on the coast relocation not just the coast but other places that are suffering from wildfires for example and also just addressing you know the fact that there's sea level rise and more storms and all those things so you just have those those types of projects and then there's also just the backlog of habitat restoration that needs to happen it's becoming even more um, important to do that because of um, the fact that we have to make our ecological systems more resilient. So not only were they not they were damaged and need to be restored. Now with the climate impact environment, it's even more important. So as far as the argument about carbon um, reduction, everybody wants that, right? But some feel that generating income to take care of these other resilient restorative projects is less important than actually getting at the um, carbon reduction issues.
5: In this episode, we're really exploring some of the questions of why this year, this effort succeeded, and what came together to make that happen. And the support of tribes was part of that, and I'm wondering how critical you think that was.
3: Obviously, the tribes have a lot of impact in Olympia because of our you know, presence and also, our, you know, we do contribute to a lot of uh, political causes and we're very engaged with the state, as we should be. And um, we were informed that this bill has some, some uh, good travel provisions and uh, we need to get it moved over to the House. So some calls were made to some of the senators that um, we needed. And some of them, you know, were not like, fully behind it our influence was able to, we were able to get enough of a um, push to get it through and, and over to the house. And so then that's when it were really, so a lot of the discussions were being had. The tribes have a presence, but also within this session, there was a lot of need for emphasis on restoring and repairing relationships based upon the racial history of the state and the federal government. And so even more so, I think it amplified our our presence there in a little bit more than maybe it has been in the past.
5: Right. And speaking to that environment you just mentioned, there have been statements from a couple of tribal leaders that the governor's veto of language related to consultation with tribes was, in one quote, a betrayal of tribal interests. What's your position on that?
3: Some tribal leaders are very upset by it. Others like me are more philosophical about it. You know, we've been supportive of Jay Inslee every time, every time he's ran. We all know that we're not always going to agree. Um, we were a little frustrated by it, um, but we've got other things that we're working on with the state and the governor's been supportive of. So um, we feel like we can work with him to try to get some language that is acceptable and achieves the um, goals that we have for our meaningful tribal consultation.
5: In general, how do you rate Governor Inslee's handling of concerns of indigenous people when it comes to these climate policies?
3: One thing that I think has been a frustration for me um, is the balance between jobs, the economy, large corporations, polluters, and tribal interests regarding protection of the environment. And he's tried to balance that to a certain extent, Um, but oftentimes, there's always this like um, conversation that happens. It's like, well, you know, they employ a lot of people, uh, whether it's Boeing or another, you know, larger polluter, or um, you know, maybe a paper mill or whatever. Right? And the balance between those two things has always been a challenge for him and for us. Is trying to understand that, you know, we have, we have you know econ- economic engines within our tribes, and we try to balance that with our need to protect the environment. And, you know, I think the state needs to do the same thing. And I think that sometimes the pendulum or the weight always goes towards the jobs and protection of the economy over protection of our waters and our air and, and uh, our ecosystems. So that's just a it's continuing. It goes on and goes on every day. And it's a, a challenge for all policymakers out there. I just feel like um, clean water is good for the economy, too. So um, and healthy orcas and healthy salmon and robust tribal fisheries, you know, helps everybody out.
0: Leonard Forsman is chairman of the Suquamish Tribe in Washington. You're listening to a conversation about Washington state's new carbon cap measure. This is Climate One. Coming up, Washington Governor Jay Inslee on how he hopes his state's policies will inspire others.
1: My state needs to do more, and that's why we've passed the best laws in the last two years, and they're just starting to kick in, right? You don't solve the problem 12 hours after you pass the bill. Uh, I'm proud. We have the best in the United States, and I encourage everybody to catch
0: us, right? Go ahead. Try to catch us. That's up next when Climate One continues.
4: Hey, Climate One fans. We have some exciting news
0: Let's return to my conversation with Washington Governor Jay Inslee. In a recent Climate One episode on public transportation, we talked a lot about the push for parity of funding between cars and transit and infrastructure and other federal bills, as opposed to the 80% that now goes to cars and highways. I asked Inslee if he supports that idea. Well,
1: I'm not sure I'd pick a numerical number of what constitutes parity, but I'll just give you some principles I think we should follow. Number one, you cannot build freeway lanes out of this problem. It's certainly endangered climate, and trying to pave, you know, a couple more uh, tens of square miles is just is not a solution to my state's transportation woes. That is a physical reality. And when you think about parity, I guess what I would say, we need parity. Each should use whatever mechanism we have to have good transportation options uh, by eliminating carbon pollution, whichever works. The reality from a physical standpoint is that every corridor of our transportation network has to uh, has to carry more passengers per mile. And I'm confident over time that, that we will. Now, I don't think that we should come to a zero road building, you know, viewpoint apart because we're going to be having electric cars, which are fantastic. I don't want to forget uh, a whole bunch of new things, scooters. Scooters are not a toy. They are a transportation system right now, right? You combine light rail with a scooter and an electric skateboard and a, and a bicycle. you got a great system. And that's happening in, in Washington State right now. It's happening in, in the real time.
0: On electric cars, the electrification of mobility is great. They're, they're sexy. The cost is coming down. They're going mainstream. I think the you know the Ford F one fifty may be a cultural game changer there. Uh, but there's a problem that uh, people like me and you who uh, drive electric cars, we don't pay gas tax to uh, to fund the roads. So you dismissed earlier that kind of you know that that gas tax issue. But how are we going to pay for roads uh, with electric vehicles?
1: Well, over first off, at the moment, it is my belief that we should in, be incentivizing electric vehicles. We should be incentivizing the way for middle-class and lower-income people to afford electric vehicles. This is not the moment to dump charges on electric vehicles. They are still an emerging technology, and I believe we should have incentives, as we did in the solar industry, as we did in the wind industry, we should in the electric transportation system, to incentivize rather than to punish people getting electric cars, so at the moment I don't think that that's that's a route to go. But over time, yes, we'll have to figure out some way that everyone participates in our in our transportation revenue structure. It could be a vehicles per mile. It could be some you know a, a fee when you get your license. We don't know yet. There will over time need to be some system like that. But right now, when we're trying to get this baby off the ground. I do believe we should be going the other direction, which is incentivizing uh, this new technology, making it easier for lower-income people to afford uh, this technology. I think from an equity standpoint, that's very important.
0: Companies are setting goals of net zero emissions. That sounds good. But those pledges are often fuzzy and rely on offsets and other controversial tools, many of them in your home state, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and others. How much credence do you put in companies saying, we're going net zero? Should we really trust that? Well,
1: I think we should applaud any effort, even if it's not totally, you know, know, 100% angelic. I mean, I just think, yes, you can always make a criticism no matter what a person does. And, you know, until Amazon delivers packages by mule, uh, you know, you're going to have carbon emissions to some degree right now. So I guess what I'm thinking is we should applaud efforts and we should inspire further efforts is the way I'm looking at it. So, and we should be reality-based. If you make a pledge that means, you know, you're not using a particular product, but the subproduct that goes into the product has an enormous carbon footprint, you got you to gotta pay attention to that, right? If you're driving an electric car, but you're using coal-fired electricity, you're you're getting a small gain, but maybe not that much. So, yes, we have to be alert to all these things. But I, you know, I I applaud people who are in part because it's it's good for public sentiment to say that this is becoming an expectation of the community that everybody's going to pull on the rope. Uh, But yes, everybody's going to need to be more ambitious over time.
0: Uh, I want to re- re- circle back to something we touched on, but you know Washington's climate policies are modeled after California's, which have been criticized for turning a blind eye to people of color that often live on fence line communities near refineries and other so- sources of local air pollution. What has Washington done to address those climate justice concerns? You mentioned that, but I want to be sure we really nail that. Yeah,
1: we've, we've, we thought that was a fundamental pillar of our climate policies was equity. And so we have been very intentional about this and built in the strongest uh, environmental justice provisions in the country. Just mention a couple of them. So 40 percent of all the investment that would go through the cap and invest has to go to these uh, these communities of poverty or frequently and frequently bipoc communities obviously, that are living there, they're getting the the first and the worst of the pollution coming off these factories and our roads, by the way. the roads are, as dangerous as toxic pollution centers. I remember meeting a young woman, all her friends had asthma because she's living next to the freeway, right? So, so for a fully 40% needs to be invested directly, and we have a very uh, equitable, open uh, decision-making system on how that is allocated. So that's a significant improvement. Uh, 10% of all the dollars of, of the clean energy Investment needs to go to tribal community lands, and they represent less than 1% of the population. So that was an important commitment as well. On the wage side, we have the strongest uh, incentive program to have people have good wages, family wage jobs, and through that, union representation. So in our previous bill we passed, we have the strongest provisions that when you bid on a project to get a grant that will be awarded— You get extra points every time you do something to have more prevailing wages, to have safe standards, to have representation. You get, and so it's a very strong incentive program. We want these new jobs to be family wage jobs. And frankly, this is a challenge for us because they're replacing older industries and newer industries kind of, you know, frequently start on the lower end of the economic curve So it is important for us to build into these policies a way to incentivize real family wage jobs as we go through this economic transition. I think if people look at our bill, they'll be encouraged on a a way to do that. That's an important thing. Now, another important thing is to have the training uh, infrastructure to train people for these jobs as well. And it has to be not just in the urban core. Uh, When I was in Nespelem the other day on the tribal in the Colville industry, that's one of the things they were talking to us about. You know, we need more training for wind turbine technicians and electric car uh, technicians and the like. So that's got to be part of our effort.
0: Yeah, a whole lot of new jobs being created there. We mentioned the climate summit in Glasgow coming up in November. You believe that states and regions can drive national governments to be more ambitious going into Glasgow, high stakes there to to move forward the Paris Agreement. But a recent report from the Environmental Defense Fund analyzed carbon emission trajectories of states and found that Washington and many other states are not on track. So how can states push countries if they're not meeting their own goals?
1: Well, first off, we can push ourselves and we can push uh, each other. In my state, uh, we actually are doing well on a per capita, per dollar GDP. We are doing relatively well compared to other states. But uh, you're always a victim of your own success. My state's been named the best place to live two years in a row. No governor in American history can claim that, where their state's been named the best place to live for two years in a row, and obviously part of that is our best economy. When that happens, people move into your state and they are economically active. And when that happens, your carbon emissions are associated. So we've been, we are attracting people from all over the world and they're coming here. So on a gross basis, we have not been able to drive down as fast as we would like, but we are in a per unit of GDP and per capita. We've been considerably successful, but I I just, what I would say to everybody My state needs to do more, and that's why we've passed the best laws in the last two years, and they're just starting to kick in, right? You don't solve the problem 12 hours after you pass the bill. So these bills need to take effect for us to achieve our goals. Uh, I'm proud. We have the best in the United States, and I encourage everybody to catch us, right? Go ahead. Try to catch us, Uh, and that's a good challenge to be in. By the way, in Glasgow, what we're doing besides just pushing our national governments, we want to have, uh, you know, uh, coalitions and agreements between ourselves that we will commit to ourselves, county to county, state to state, to commit ourselves to higher ambitions that may be more aggressive than our nation states. And that's appropriate because Washington state can do something. I can do something that President Biden can't do. Um, you know, I'm not negotiating with senators from West Virginia. So, so I can move my state faster than he can move the nation. And so we, we have to make our states laboratories of democracy and clean energy. We need to be ahead of our nation states on these policies. That's what we intend to do in
0: Glasgow. On this Climate One, we've been talking with Governor Jay Inslee, Tom Wolfe of BP, and Leonard Forsman of the Suquamish tribe about Washington's new cap and invest bill. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be difficult, and sometimes depressing, but solutions begin with discussions like these. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation and solutions. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.
4: Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.